We are coming in our study of the book of Ecclesiastes to the last section of the book. The last section of the book. And you remember that it deals with the subject life under the sun with the sun. Now the first section of the book that we studied pointed out to us Solomon's search for the path of life under the sun. And for those of you that are taking notes, I have written up on the side the key verse in each one of these sections. You might want to make note of that. Following his description of his search for the path of life under the sun, Solomon then pointed out to us the second great truth, namely the sovereign control of God over life under the sun. And then he went into that section which we have been studying for the last few weeks as the reasons why many people lose their way in following God. They get off on streets that go nowhere. And he described some of these streets for us. He does not use the term streets that go nowhere within the text. We have used that because what he's describing, he's describing is the, the way that people lose their way. They get off following something else other than what God has said. It stunts their spiritual growth. It leads many into darkness. And so he warns us concerning these ways. And then today we begin our final section, which has to do with the security of God's plan for life under the sun. One author has said that in this last section, Solomon, if you're a Greek, by the way, you call him an ecclesiast. If you're a Hebrew, you call him Kohelet. Somebody came up to me and they wanted to know what this word I was using. They weren't, they were hoping I wasn't saying hell in the middle of it. But uh, that's the Hebrew name for the preacher, as we would say in English. The preacher said it, the Kohelet. And he is telling us, and, and they say to us that in the 9th, 10th, 11th, and 12th chapters of this book, he does not add anything new. I don't quite agree with that. But he does re-emphasize the great truth that he has learned through his search, through the fact of discovering that God is in control of life under the sun, and through those warnings that he's given us concerning streets that go nowhere. Now, if you look, please, in this ninth chapter and the first verse, you'll notice that it starts with the word for. 
That means it's a preposition that's beginning. It's not beginning a new thought. It's carrying on the thought. And actually, the section that we're studying begins with the 16th verse of the 8th chapter. But the key is right here in chapter 9 and verse 1. Will you look at it? For I have taken all this to my heart and explain it that righteous men, wise men, and their deeds are in the hand of God. Now, that's going to run through this whole the next chapter. We are safe. We are secure in our position, in our relationship with God. We are, we are secure in the midst of our experiences. We do not know what these experiences will be. Look at the last part of that verse. Men do not know whether it will be love or hatred. Anything awaits him. You see? The point is that none of us know what tomorrow will bring. But whatever tomorrow brings, we and our reaction and our action are in his hands. He's talking about our security. Our security in God's plan for life under the sun. Now, the first part of this, the first segment of this section is found there in the, in the ninth chapter where we're going to be studying. And it has to do with victory in spite of uncertainty. Life is uncertain. We do not know what one day will bring forth for any one of us. In spite of that, we can know that we are in his hands. What we do is in his hands. And we, therefore, can be joyous and victorious in the midst of whatever circumstances will come into our lives. Now, with that as the theme that he's giving to us, let's go and look at what he says about it. First of all, notice that you have to go back up to verse 16 of chapter 8. And here he speaks about the inability of man. Look, first of all, with me, please, at verse 16. Look at it. When I gave my heart to know wisdom and to seek the task which has been done on the earth, even though one would never sleep night or day. And I saw every work of God. I concluded 
that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. Even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover. And though the wise man should say, I know, he cannot discover it. First of all, you notice that these verses point out to us the scope, the scope of Solomon's research. It's depth. You notice he says there, he said, I gave my heart to know wisdom and to seek the task which has been done on the earth. That word task there is the same as saying I have sought out to watch every single activity of man on the earth. Now the intensity in which he followed in this, he said he did not sleep night or day. He carried on his work night or day, trying to discover everything that man would do on the face of the earth, all the circumstances that would come into man's life and cause him to react in certain ways. And he was making this study in order to understand what is the real heart and core of life and what should a man do on the earth. What is the best philosophy? What is the best way to go? What is the answer to these things? Now notice he limits himself, but not very much. He limits himself to what is on the earth. He was concerned only what went on on the earth. You remember we have told you many times, this book does not tell you the way to go to heaven. This book does not explain to you how to receive eternal life. This book was only concerned with behavior and the way of living while here under the sun on the earth. And Solomon said, I have searched out. And he said, I have investigated and I have tried to investigate all the activities that man could possibly get involved in on the earth. I have tried to catalog them. I've tried to come up to some generalizations about them so that we could have a real concept of how man should act on the earth. And notice the success, the success that he achieved. He says, no man can understand it. Look there in verse 17. I saw every work of God. I conclude that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. Even though a man seek laboriously, he will not discover. He says, hey, I've discovered too many pieces to this puzzle. I can't even collect them all. Well, yet let alone find out how they fit together and come to an understanding of things. He said, no man can do this. The job is too big. One of the great wise men of our day, Oppenheimer, has said that if you would go to the ocean and take a small teacup and fill it with water from that ocean. 
you would have a symbol of the amount of knowledge that man has able, been able to achieve over the many generations he has lived on the earth. His knowledge is equal to one cup of water compared to the volume in the sea. Man just cannot, within any short expanse of time that he has on the earth, come to grips and put the pieces of human behavior and human responsibility and human reaction together to come up with a clear understanding of what should be. And then he adds something. He says there, though the wise man would say, I know, he cannot discover. Anyone who says he has the answer, that one is but a blind leader of the blind. Most of you, I'm sure, have purchased picture puzzles. You ever notice that in the picture puzzle, they always give you a print of the picture? Suppose you had all those pieces and no print of the picture. See, that's the problem facing man. God has given him no print of what the picture should be. He has all the pieces. And Solomon said, I've tried to collect the pieces. I can't get all of the pieces together. Those that I can't, I can't put together. And no man can know. So how am I going to know the way I am to go? Having pointed out the inability of man, he then moved on to talk about the sovereignty of God. And he talked, first of all, about a great certainty. And it's there in verse 9, uh, chapter 9 and verse 1, which we have read. For I have taken all this to heart and explain it that the righteous man, wise men, and their deeds are in the hands of God. What a, what, what a tremendous statement. Righteous men, wise men, and their deeds are in the hands of God. Let's look at it for a moment. What does he mean, righteous men? Righteous men. Well, if you look back to chapter 7, and if you look at verse 20, you'll discover who is not righteous. He says, indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. In other words, there are many men who think they are righteous, but they are not really righteous, for there is not one of them who continually does good and never sins. 
That being the case, then who is the righteous man? Who are the righteous men of whom he's speaking here? Will you turn with me, please, to a very familiar verse over in the book of Romans and in chapter 3? Will you look at it, please? Romans chapter 3 and verse 24. And then in verse 28, look at these two verses with me. What does it say? Being justified. That is, being declared righteous in the eyes of God. That's what justified means. Being justified. Being declared righteous in the eyes of God as a gift. First of all, if you and I are ever to be regarded as righteous, we cannot earn it, we cannot merit it, it must come to us as God's gift to us. Secondly, you notice it says being declared righteous or justified as a gift by His grace. It's a gift which God gives to us on the basis of His love for us and by pure grace. It's not something that you and I accomplish by our works. It is given to us by His grace alone. And then he says the third thing. He says, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. How can God regard me, a sinner, as righteous in His eyes? How can He give me the gift of righteousness even by grace? It's because Jesus bore my sin upon the cross and died there for my sin and put away all of my sin and then took his own perfect righteousness and gives it to me in place of my sin. God can declare me righteous in his eyes because of the redemption that was worked out between him and God the Son on the cross of Calvary. And the fourth thing we need to see is in verse 28. For we maintain that man is justified by faith apart from the work of the law. Who is a righteous man in the eyes of God? The man, the woman, the boy, the girl, whom God, to whom God gives righteousness as a free gift by His grace on the basis of the redemption that Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross, and He gives it to those who will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you this morning 
are not trusting in your own works, in your own performance, in your own religiosity, in your own goodness, but you're trusting simply that Jesus died for you and was raised again to share with you his righteousness, then God has given to you the gift of righteousness. And you are one of the righteous in his eyes. And since you are one of the righteous in his eyes, then you and all that you do are in his hands. If you look back at the text there in the book of Ecclesiastes, you notice that it reaps another group. It speaks of the wise. Now who are the wise? Who are the wise? Again, we must look at them in New Testament context. Will you turn with me, please, to the book of 1 Corinthians? 1 Corinthians and in chapter 2 of that book. 1 Corinthians, and in chapter 2 of that book. A verse, two verses that are very familiar, but let's not lose their meaning because they are familiar. But in 1 Corinthians, and in chapter 2, and in verse 14, we read, but a natural man. Now, who is a natural man? That is what it is. Man born according to nature with all the equipment and the ability that nature gives him. He learns everything by what his eyes see, by what his ears hear, by how he can handle what he can smell and through his senses. He, he studies his environment and he investigates him and comes to conclusions. And this is the source and method of his wisdom. But it says, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He does not understand them because they are spiritually appraised. They are understood only by the work of the Holy Spirit. And since he does not have the Holy Spirit, all he has is his own natural ability, and he's resting upon what he can investigate and what he can find out, the way he puts the pieces together and the conclusions he comes to, he is not the wise man. But who then is the wise man? Verse 17, or verse 15, rather, look at it. But he who is spiritual... Don't let that word spiritual throw you. It's not complicated. It means simply he who is of the Spirit. He who has believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and has been born of the Spirit and is now indwelt by the Holy Spirit. His body is now the temple of the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is in him. And the Holy Spirit now takes the things of God the commands, the promises of God's Word and reveals the truth of these things to him. And now what does it say? He who is spiritual appraises all things. He evaluates and he comes to a conclusion and understands all these things that God has for him. 
He is the wise man. In the terms of Solomon, this is a man whom Solomon speaks of as being wise. The man who being born of the Spirit and indwelt by the Spirit now permits himself to be controlled by the Spirit and taught by the Spirit so that he is walking in the Spirit and growing and maturing in the Spirit. This is a wise man. And this wise man and all that he does are in the hands, is in the hands of God. Come back, please, to the book of Ecclesiastes. What a tremendous statement that is said here in this verse. Look at it. The righteous man, the believer in Christ, the wise man, that believer who has surrendered to the control of the Holy Spirit and is growing in grace and the knowledge of our Lord. The righteous man, the wise man, and all of their acts, all of their deeds, all of their works are in the hands of God. Isn't that amazing? Hallelujah. You know, I've been looking at my schedule for this coming week, and I'd rather blow it apart. I'd rather forget all about it. I was hoping to have three days off someplace by the surf where I could play golf and go fishing and do a couple of other things. And so many things have crowded in. And I'm wondering, can I, can... Listen, Harold, listen. You and all you do are in the hands of God. They're not in my hands. As I face tomorrow, what I have to do is not in my hands. As you face tomorrow, what you have to do isn't in your hands. You and you, your tomorrow is in his hands. Remember what Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. And then remember the next part. That is that you and I are in the hands of the Father, and no one shall pluck us out of his hand, and we are in the hands of Christ, in the hands of the Father and of the Son, and no one can pluck us out of his hand. Not only us, but everything we're going to be doing tomorrow. Now, having pointed out to us the great certainty, he then goes on to point out to us the uncertainty. Look at it. What is it? He says it there. Man does not know whether it will be love or hatred. Anything awaits him. What is he saying there? He says that you and I and all that we will do is in his hands. Now what's going to happen? Even though we are in the hands of God, 
we still do not know what will happen tomorrow. Whether what will happen tomorrow will be a thing of love or a thing of hate. Are you ready for that? Oh, how many times I hear people and preachers are, are guilty of this. They say, just come and believe in Jesus and you've got all your problems settled and tomorrow will be wonderful and the day after that will be wonderful and you'll have no more problems. Hogwarts. Ask any one of us who has believed in Christ. What he does say, that if you put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, he will take you in your hands. And then as you face tomorrow, if what happens tomorrow is a thing of hate, you'll still be in his hands. If it's a thing of love, you'll still be in his hands. But it can be either one. Take Job. That's the classic example of it. Job is described as a righteous man. Job is described as being in the hands of God. Remember, Satan came to him and he said, well, well, God, I, you, I, yes, I have noticed your servant Job, but I noticed too that you've got a fence around him and you've got him well protected. He's in your hands. See? But what happened to Job? Well, one minute, he had a family, he had wealth, and he had his health. And very shortly after that, see, he had the thing of love. And everybody looking at Job said, hey, isn't it wonderful to be a believer in God? Look at how God blesses those who believe in him. And then, boom, Job has no family, no wealth, and no health. See? And along came his three friends and said, Job, face it. God doesn't love you anymore. But that's all right. You and I do the same thing, don't we? We go out tomorrow and we face our world and if things go well, we say, praise God, hallelujah, isn't it wonderful what Jesus does for us, how much he loves us. Well, and suddenly things change. And instead of going well, they go stinko. And we say, praise God, hallelujah, wonderful. Huh? No. We may say praise God with our lips, but our eyes are saying, hey, what's coming off here? Why is God mad at me? What he's trying to say to us is that all he promises is to hold you in his hand. He doesn't promise to give you in your life things of love all the time. He says what will happen into your life will be, can possibly be a thing of love, and it can also be a thing of hate. Now, there are some who object to this interpretation. They tell me, oh, Harold, you're not understanding that text correctly. What I'm saying is this. If you look at it carefully, it says that the righteous men and the wise men and their deeds, they are in the hands of God. Now, all the other men who are not in the hands of God, 
then they are forced to face the things of hate and the things of love. And they don't know what's going to happen. But if you're really trusting God, you know that only things of love will come into your life. How men can interpret the Scriptures, I don't know. But that's the way they say. But I know they're wrong in this place because he goes right on in the next few verses to point out to us the certainty of the greatest of all evils, the greatest of all acts of hate that can come into the human life, the certainty of death. Will you look at it? And notice that in the record of this, that he is talking here about the righteous and the wise and the unrighteous and the foolish alike. So look at the verses, what he said. It is the same for who? Huh? It is the same for all. There is one fate for the righteous and a different fate for the wicked, right? Huh? Huh? Don't you believe the Bible? It says there is one fate for the righteous and for the wicked, for the good, for the clean, and for the unclean, for the man who offers a sacrifice and for the one who does not sacrifice. As the good man is, so is the sinner. As the swearer is, that doesn't mean somebody that's cussing. That refers to somebody who is taking an oath. To the one who takes an, as the one who takes an oath is, so is the one who is afraid to take an oath. And then he says, this is an evil in all that is done under the sun. And there is one fate for all men. That's the record of the facts. Just look around about you. You see people who are doing their best to follow God and walk in the path of righteousness. What happens to them? Well, if they live long enough, pretty soon they what? They die. Some of them die young. Some of them die old. See? On the other hand, you have the wicked ones, those that swing it and live it up and are very, very selfish. And what happens to them? die. Along comes another fellow and he says, I know the answer to that one. I have a diet that I follow and this diet cleans me out and gets my system real healthy. See, I jog every morning, I eat the proper food, I have fiber, I have vitamins, I name it. See, I have all of this and this is the solution. And what happens to this guy that's clean? Huh? He dies. <laughs> and the other slob like myself who eats hot dogs and all the rest of it, what happens to him? He dies. See? Then along comes another class of people. And they say, oh, I see that it's not based upon our works or our accomplishments. But no, I bring to God a sacrifice. And some used to bring sacrifices of animals to God. Today we do not do that. But we attend a threefold communion service. Or we attend the Eucharist service. And we take the bread and the cup and we hold them before God and we say, 
to him, we are trusting simply and completely and entirely on one thing, the fact that Jesus died for us. And we offer our sacrifice. What happens to these people? Those who offer their sacrifices and those who do not offer their sacrifice. What happens to them? Huh? Both die. Then there's a good man and a sinner. Both die. There's a fellow who makes promises to God. He takes his oath and he makes promises to God. Lord, if you'll spare me, I'll do this, 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 and this. Here's the other fellow who's afraid. He said, you know, I better not say that I'll do this, this, because he might spare me, then I'll have to do it. So he doesn't, so he doesn't take an oath. See? So what happens? They both die. That's the fact. The fact of the record. So see? Even those held in the hands of God, the righteous and the wise, eventually go into death if Jesus tarries. And the wicked and those who are not in the hands of God also go into death. So what's the difference? Then point, he points out the reason for this. What is the reason for it? Look at there in verse 3. He said, Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Why do they die? Two reasons. That little word, sons of men, is the diminutive and is referring to those who are little atoms. You and I are the sons and daughters of Adam. We are little atoms. And because we are little atoms, we are involved in the sin of Adam. And by one man's sin entered into the world and death by sin. And because of that, we die. But there's another reason. It says insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. He's not saying that we're all insane. The word insanity means the, the person who cannot distinguish reality, reality from that which is false. All right. He says, you and I, because of our fallen natures, are not able to really understand the reality of life lived in the way of God wants us. And we are constantly making the wrong decisions. And we are constantly following our own paths of sin. And because of this, we die. And notice the result. For he says there in verse 4, Whoever is joined with the living is hope. Surely a live dog is better than a dead lion. You understand the Bible. What he's saying there is a live dog of a Gentile is better than a dead king of Judah, the lion. And he goes on and says, For the living, they will die. But the dead do not know anything, nor have they any longer a reward, for their memory is forgotten. Indeed, their love, their hate, their zeal have already perished. Now get this, please. 
they will no longer have a share in all that is done under the sun. Now be sure you understand what is not said. There are some people who take this passage of Scripture and they want us to believe that this passage of Scripture teaches us that when a person dies, he is dead, he no longer has any consciousness, there is no life after death. And they use this verse constantly to quote to prove that. But that is not what he is saying. In fact, if you go on to read the Kohelet and his message, you discover in chapter 12 and in verse 5, he speaks of, in, in verse 5, he speaks of our going to our eternal home. And in verse 7, he speaks of the fact that the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. He says that at death, our spirits go to be with God, though our bodies go into the grave. He is definitely giving us the point that there is a life after death. He is not, in this passage, denying that fact. What he is denying, what he is saying, and it's something that we need to see, is that those that have died have severed with this earth. They do not know anything of what's going on about this earth. They no longer have any to, to reap any benefits from life on this earth. There's no reward for them on this earth. Their love has no effect on this earth anymore. Their hate has no effect anymore on this earth. Their zeal in trying to do what, to accomplish their things is at an end. They have no longer any hope, any relationship at all with this earth, this life under the sun. Do you know what that does to spiritism? Do you know what that does to the doctrine that we are, that we can pray to certain holy saints and that they'll help us? Do you know what that doctrine does in that thing? It makes it very plain that those who have gone on, they have nothing more to do with what's going on here on the earth. We're not in the hands of the saints. Thank God we're in the hands of God. But what is it saying? It is saying this, my friend. It is saying it very plain and very clear and very sharp that you and I, you and I have this life. And in this life, we are in the hands of God. In this life, things of hate come in, stir us up challenge us, face, force us to face all kinds of problems and unhappiness and dissatisfaction and uncertainty. Into this life also come things of love, the blessings of God in all of its multiple forms come into our lives here and now. We have this now. When we die, we move on into the hands of God and our work on this earth is done. But we have our task now. And we and our task are in the hands of God. I want to ask you a question, my friend. How do you know that God loves you? 
Do you know that God loves you? Do you know it? If so, how do you know that God loves you? I asked that question of a lady this week. And she said, Oh, Pastor Dunning, the Lord has been doing so many wonderful things for me. I know that he loves me. Is that how you know? Well, what are you going to do when he stops doing those wonderful things and things get rough and hard as they're certain to do before very long? Does that mean that he no longer loves you? Are you basing your fact that God loves you upon the circumstances that you face day by day? How do we know that God loves us? For God so loved the world. God in this way loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. How do we know that God loves us? Turn with me, please, to 1 John and the fourth chapter of 1 John. 1 John. And in chapter 4 of 1 John, and will you look, please, at verse 9. 1 John, chapter 4 and verse 9. By this, the love of God was manifested in us. By this, the love of God is clearly and precisely revealed. By what? First, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. I know that God loves me because of what took place at Bethlehem when he gave his only begotten son to be born as a man in this world to be my savior. And because of the fact of Bethlehem, I know that God loves me. Doesn't make any difference whether the thing that comes into my life this week will be a thing of hate or the thing that comes into my life this week will be a thing of love. It makes no difference. The fact of Bethlehem remains and from that fact I know but he loves me. But that's not all. Look at verse 10. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loves us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. And I look at Calvary as I look at Bethlehem. And I say, I know that God loves me. 